The Edifice Complex podcast is brought to you by DCM, the drawing specialists, Blue Rhythm Commissioning Software, and Sensor Suite, the future of intelligent buildings. Welcome to the Edifice Complex, the property design and development podcast. Let your hosts, Adam Muggleton and Robert Bean, keep you up with who is innovating and doing great work, perspective on the adjacent possible, and challenges to the status quo. Welcome to the Edifice Complex. I'm Robert Bean, your co-host and unofficial mediator, here with my colleague, official agitator, friend, and Yoda of most everything to do with buildings, Mr. Adam Muggleton. Say hello, sir, Yoda. Hello. So I am interested in this conversation because we're touching on one of my favorite pet ideas that all engineers are going to evolve into data scientists to some degree. So we're going to drill down on that a bit today. Absolutely. And other things as well. Today's guest earned her PhD from the University of Toronto in aerospace, aeronautical, and astronautical engineering, and has 30 years of experience in the aerospace and computational industry for fixed and rotary wing aircraft. She is the owner and research director of Shanti Engineering and Research, and previously served as a senior aerodynamicist, uh, that's a new word for me, for Sikorsky Aircraft, and was a research associate for uh, Rensselaer Polytechnic Institute. Welcome to the show, Hema Murdy. Yeah, thank you very much for having me. This is exciting. Yeah, so Dr. Murdy, like Adam and Christoph, we met in one of my courses that I was teaching, and what intrigued me uh, the most from your participation was coming from a field that we don't normally see in our courses. And as it turns out, you like to take your brain on a journey, many journeys, exposing it to all kinds of different fields of study. And that's one of the reasons why we love you and why we wanted to have you on the show. You really are one of our poster children, multidisciplinary studies, and your level of curiosity is magnificent. Tell our audience, where did that start from? What's your story? Yeah, great question. First of all, like my PhD is in aerospace studies, so that's the official title. But, you know, we all on this call definitely know that engineering is multidisciplinary in nature. And it's not very bifurcated in the sense that you can just look at one thing and hope to solve the engineering problem to your own satisfaction of curiosity. I mean, we all got into engineering because we're curious, right? The old French word, engineer, you know, like we're just curious and we want to know what's involved in solving a problem. And we learn early on that it's not just ever one thing. It's not, you know, might be the solution might end up being one equation or one thing, but it's really not. It's a bunch of things. And the more the mind can grasp that every solution to every single problem on the planet is multifaceted, Whether it shows up or not in a blatant way is not the point. The point is, is there something else figuring into the solution? So what engineers normally do, and I'm talking to the choir here, but we normally just look at the biggest thing because if we said, okay, we're going to look at every single thing, we'll be here all night and the problem won't be solved and the the airplane would clash by the time you figured out what you need to fix. So that's not the way to go, but, you know, pick up the macroscopic part of that problem, solve it, and then we know we're 90% there. And is the thing going to fly? Okay, well, safely. Uh, yeah, okay. So, you know, good to go. And we'll work on the other things later. So basically, that's what got me here is just curiosity. And I think when I was in high school, I was always interested in science. My mother's influence was, she was 
a scientist at heart. And I think her father is a teacher. So I think that thing, that natural kind of curiosity got into me. And I was always very curious and watched science programs, read science books. And then I think in high school, they did the Viking landing was really popular at that time. And Carl Sagan would always come on TV and explain how that lander was going to get to Mars from Earth, first of all. And once it got there, what it was going to do. And I thought that was amazing. If that's what science does, sign me up. I'm ready. I'm going to go. So yeah, from there onwards, it was pretty easy. I mean, I was, you know, finishing up high school. So did my undergraduate in mechanical engineering, which is what um, the university was offering. I don't want to specialize too early. I just want to get a broad understanding of what this whole beast called engineering was. And I had a strong math background already. I was really good at math. So I think that helped. Uh, A lot of people told me that. So I didn't have to worry about trying to figure out how to do stuff. I just had to figure out how I was going to get to that point where that Mars rover and I would meet up. Like I wanted to do those things. Yeah. So that's my... Going to flag it down as it goes. Yeah, flag it down. Here I am. What's the next Mars River 2? Yeah, exactly. So, I mean, that's my short story. I mean, I think you're presented with the excitement of how you could use yourself in terms of implementing what you know and what you're excited about and how can you push technology forward. And if there's some part of that that I can be involved in, you know, sign me up kind of thing. So I went from there and I think uh, undergraduate is never enough for anybody because you really want to, you know, you're just getting like bits and pieces of a whole buffet here, yeah. you know, like one piece of one thing. And you really just want to get in there and say, no, I, I this isn't n- enough for me. I mean, yeah, I could certainly figure this out on the fly, which is one route to go. Certainly that's an option. You know, you can get a regular job in a company and then start from there. And that that's totally fine. But I just wanted to figure something out more. So I went to Toronto with the Institute of Aerospace Studies. And I thought that was a cool thing to do just because they were studying so many different things that I just wanted to know. Then, you know, it blows up from there because aerospace is not one thing, just like engineering is not one thing. But the integrated approach was always at the back of my mind. So even despite the fact that people would always promote like one thing over the other, there'd be again disparate groups like gas dynamics is where I started, but there's also the spacecraft dynamics, dynamicists who have nothing to do with fluids, you know, don't look at me kind of thing. But those groups do exist. And so you get this big spectrum of the whole field being a bunch of pieces that need to be understood, you know, and so then in that high school mind was still there, right? So I wanted to figure out, okay, so this means that in order to get some kind of a product out that's functional, that's new, cutting edge, that will solve mankind's issues or push it forward, you have to put a bunch of pieces together. And certainly you could understand one, but you do need a bunch of things. There was all kinds of disciplines at that location with all different types of research streams, which may or may not have anything to do with each other in the sense that they could be studying vacuum performance, you know, like a spacecraft. And then you're here with the full throttle fluid flow sitting in the next thing. And so I realized, you know, this is a big domain and you could do a lot of things, but you have to really understand how all the pieces get together. And no one in isolation could ever put 
a product out there and make and hope that it can get to a point where it can make an advance. So from there on, I went to do my PhD. I was in gas dynamics for my master's degree. And then in my PhD, I wanted to kind of go more the aerodynamics. And at that time, I was always from high school onwards keeping an eye on NASA because I remembered NASA was the buzzword at the back of my mind because they were the ones that were doing all the promotional uh, press conferences where people would come up and say, hey, I discovered this. Here's a picture of this on this and, uh, you know, and so on. And they would be explaining all the stuff that they did. It may not even have been Mars anymore. It may have been some other thing. I just caught on that they were doing a lot of cool stuff. So NASA's work was always at the back of my mind. So whatever they'd be doing, I'd keep up to date. And then at that time, computers weren't, you know, it wasn't easy to say, um, let's Google this. It was a lot of work. I mean, you barely did your work with your hands mostly and computers were a secondary tool. So you would use your own intelligence to figure out where to get the information. And sometimes you'd write a certain you know, researcher, an investigator, you'd write them personally and say, Hey, uh, I know. Like, what a concept. <laughs> yeah, yeah, so and so. Please, will you? I'm just a poor student, you know. So, yeah. Well, so I'm, just, I'm going to pause you there for a second because yeah. there's a great story. Notre Dame College, just outside of Regina, Wilcox, Saskatchewan, of all places. If anybody knows where it is, you know, I'd, I'd be shocked. But the, the guy that started was Father Anthony Murray, and he was a prolific writer. And back in the day, like in the 30s, you know, they had no money, but he would write world leaders from everywhere. Well, as it turns out, he ended up communicating with one of Napoleon Bonaparte's relatives wow. who had Napoleon's library. Wow. We're talking about the Nuremberg Chronicles. Like, this is a rare document, right? Yeah. Anyway, the college ends up with this collection of books in the middle of nowhere in Saskatchewan. It's a world-class library. It should be in the Smithsonian, you would think, Right. But yeah. it's not. It's like 20, 30 minutes out of Regina, Saskatchewan. And the only reason why it happened is because he wrote letters to world leaders. And the response for that is a legendary library in the middle of nowhere. That's cool. <laughs> that's very that's cool. cool. That, that reminds me of me. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah, well, that's why. Here's this NASA scientist, you know, busy. His boss is probably saying, you know, did you fix that code yet? Or did you, you know, make that? Gizmo work yet? Where's your team? Blah, blah, blah. In the middle, he gets this letter from this little tiddlywinks person from Toronto. Where's that? Uh, does anybody know where Canada is? Um, so, you know, and then says, I'm working on this project. I saw your paper on blah, blah, blah. I can't get a copy. Can you please send me, you know, a copy of this and anything related to this? Because I'm really interested in this topic. And I know that you've done work on it. So thanks very much, you know, Hema. And then here I come home one day and then there's this big stack of papers uh, sitting, you know, cause they would, the post office would just, you know, flop it in front of your door. There was no organization in those days. Hopefully it was there when you got home, you know? So there was this whole stack of papers and I said, Oh wow, that's amazing. The guy actually wrote back. And then when I completed my degree, he was actually one of my external examiners and then invited me to NASA to give a talk on all the work that I had done. And oh, I actually asked, this, yeah, I know it was amazing. And then I actually asked his staff to help me if I needed any more uh, support material, because in those days, it wasn't really easy to download papers and things like that, what they do now, but you actually had to physically get the guy to send you them in the mail. So interesting about your story there is 
One thing that struck me is the importance of having science and the advancement of science and STEM in culture, right? So you talk about Carl Sagan. For me, I'm a bit older. It's, it was Star Trek, right? Today, it's Elon Musk. There has people, culture, you have to have present in the culture the thirst for this or it's not going to go anywhere, right? Oh, definitely. I mean, yeah. I think all my undergrad class, I remember everyone saying, I want to build a transporter beam. I want to build a phaser. So, I mean, Star Trek was definitely one of the, and even now, I think the other day they interviewed one of those last set of astronauts on the space station. And someone said something like, yeah, I was on Star Trek. And I mean, not, you know, since Star Trek has gone on since the 67 yeah. or something. Yeah. So it was one of the recent ones, which I have not kept up on, but I know what they're talking about. I mean, all that gizmo technology that they kind of imagine could be possible. So they're into that. And, and I think that you're right. I mean, there's got to be something somewhere along the line where somebody says to you, it, this thing that isn't in existence yet, it's possible. And maybe dream it. Dream it's it and maybe make it. Captain Kirk, yeah, all these people, they, they're inspirational figures, right? But they're cultural icons. So yeah. one of the problems we have with buildings, and which we're going to get on to in a minute, is there's no cultural icons or buildings or making buildings better in the culture isn't there. It's on HGTV. Oh, I'm going to rip my kitchen out and put in a granite top. But it's not about the technology and the advancement of it as a science, right? It's the right. cosmetics of it. The culture is focusing on the cosmetics and not the science and the advancement of it. And I find we need a Captain Kirk for buildings, right? <laughs> absolutely. We do. Um, I think you're absolutely right. And I think the only way possible is if they have more PR um, in this. I see it now with the social platforms. I think we have more PR now just because, you know, people will log into a serious platform that we have some respect for, and then they will kind of chase down somebody they know, or they'll see a, a good picture and say, oh, who is this person? So because of social platforms, I think there might be now some of that. But you're right, the you know charismatic nature of Carl Sagan, the charismatic nature of Captain Picard, you know, the whole what you're talking about isn't there in that sense. What you're saying is that, you know, where you can grab the attention of a school-age kid and say, you could be a super, you know, whatever um, in this field if you want to dream Who's about Captain Kirk of engineers, building engineers. Yeah. Right? yeah. Tell me. I prefer Picard because Picard is more of a cerebral guy, you know? Yeah, totally, yeah. <laughs> Kirk, was Whereas a, Kirk was kind of like, you know, uh, the Kirk long, was a playboy. And the West, you know, I kind of can't think of him as Ponderosa. You know, the yeah. Ponderosa of the street sure. age, you know, like. Yeah. Captain Kirk you know, was more frontier, kick the door in, pick yeah, up. Yeah, yeah. Let's, let's talk about it. Let's, I, let's just, yeah. I, I think I like Spock more, you yeah. see, because Spock would yeah. be in charge of the gizmos. See, he, yeah. he made sure those gizmos worked and, you know, he used his brain. And I thought, hey, that's what I want to do. You know, and I think that's where we need to go. And sure, the emotion is what drives people. I got to get excitement for it. But ultimately, I think. The trick is like what you were saying about the origin story. I think the trick here, if I would want to boil it down to one, is the fact that people showed in a very dramatic way that every human being has a brain. And if they use it to the maximum capacity that they're capable of, your potential, you want to spend your life discovering your potential. And you could do a lot of good stuff, but 
you have to sit down one day and tell yourself, hey, I'm really talented. Okay, I may not be showing it now because I don't have all the pieces together. But what a life that would be if I spent it discovering what all those pieces were, you know, and along the way did some maybe helpful stuff. That would be cool. And even if I didn't, what a great discovery would be of how far I could possibly take. Adam, we need to have him as our prime minister. I, oh I don't know what we just, that right there is the way to inspire a generation. Go back to science as a culture. And I'm serious about that. We're going to, the author now, I'm drawing a blank, but the title of the book was The World Was Flat. Do you, I don't remember. Oh, yeah. yeah, Friedman. And you know, And early on in the book, he talks about different nations around the world whose ethos was science-based versus economics or or law-based, as our system here is in North America. But when you get outside of North America, there are other nations that it's a science-based culture. Uh, India is one of them, right? Germany right now, you know, with their leadership being scientists. And you look at the the fluidity of their social systems under mm-hmm. engineering principles versus law systems or economic systems. Yeah. Like the U.S. right now is a mess. I'm not saying Canada is any better, <laughs> but you know, because we have our own issues. But it's not like other societies, you know, where that yeah. book. And I think you're right about the culture issue. I know, as I said early on, my mother was a big influence on science and the scientific mind and. Actually, she was the one that was more interested in Star Trek and said, hey, this is a great show. You guys go watch it. I got to do housework or whatever. And I was like, oh, yeah, Spock, I'm it. That's it. You know, and then Captain Picard came along later. But so I get what you're saying. I mean, culturally, the mindset and the culture that I guess I grew up in was that I have cousins who are, you know, engineers already who are a lot older than me. So and I know that in India, that's a big proportion. And I know a lot of scientists in India that are women, and I know a lot of them started at a very young age. So there could be that element of it in terms of cultural promotion of, you know, the mindset and education being valuable. People need role models. And it's interesting, right? So you think your attention was great when you were very young. Oh, yeah, definitely. And that's not unusual. We've all had that experience. For me, Star Trek was about exploration. Definitely. That's made me a nomad most of my career. I don't know. I was always listening for Scotty to come on. I I always Scotty. Chief Engineer. Yeah, (laughs) I I know. That was my guy. (laughs) You know, they made him, they could have made him a lot better, but the Chief Engineer is definitely, you know, a problem solver. But the only only casting issue I had with that character, and I know as an engineer, I should be, you know, rah-rah Scotty, but (laughs) The problem I had with the way they made that stereotype is that he would come in after Kirk and Spock said what to do. And then it seemed to me like he was following orders. Go fix that thing. Okay, pull it out, you know, blah, blah, put it back. You know, the transporter beam works now. (laughs) That's the nature of engineering, right? So in our culture, engineering and problem solving is subordinate to leadership. That's an observation you could make for Canada and America, I'd say. But let's get on to sort of bigger stuff. So clearly you're academic. Congratulations on Thanks. that. I bowed at the end Don't of the hold that against me. <laughs> the Edifice Complex will continue in just a moment. Can you find the drawing and supporting documents you need in less than a minute? Now you can with Echo. It's simple. 
Just type what you're looking for and press enter. Echo knows your building. Speak with a drawing specialist today. Ask about our special offer of painless onboarding plus six months free with Echo. Visit podcast.thedsoffer.com. That's podcast.thedsoffer.com. And now, back to the show. The other thing I like, Paul, I want to talk about data science in a minute, but for me, life is a Venn diagram. It's a, it's a series of overlapping Venn diagrams, right? So your career and how you've approached it is really that, right? Because you know, you've been in the aeronautical engineering fields, you're in the computational science field. Yeah. And then the data science field overlaps that, right? Yeah. This is my other frustration with the built environment. It resists this Venn diagram of overlapping sometimes, right? It right. likes its silo. It likes its blinkered look. I'd like to talk about data analytics and data science because I believe this is one of the things that is going to bleed to all professions ultimately, right? Oh, yeah. All businesses are in the data business, but 80% of them just don't realize it yet. Absolutely. And you hit the nail because when I came back from my stint at Sikorsky, I told myself that falling into any kind of bucket and narrowing yourself is going to be a huge mistake. And the only way to go forward in problem solving, which is why I like integrated anything, you know, if you have a course on integrated solutions of things, I'm there because the only way going forward now in 2000 and onwards, there is absolutely no excuse for a person to emit a discipline from the problem solving table because we are so integrated in not only with the World Wide Web, I mean, physically and in terms of getting information, but also people are more mobile now. I mean, if you want to work with a researcher in another country, in a day, that person could be standing, I mean, not today, but you know, that person previously could be sitting beside you. I mean, you could be, you know, putting your heads together and, hey, let's get this, you know, kind of thing. And so that kind of mentality has to break down that, um, you know, thou wilt only, you know, look at your little discipline corner of the world, like the frog in the well, you know, that's just going to be a disaster. And I think we can all agree that today's problems in the world have stemmed from this myopic vision of anything, not just engineering, although engineering is causing the fact that you're not getting solutions in engineering is causing some domino effect problems. However, in every discipline, this is happening, you know, and I think that the arts is finally getting that faster. Their mindset works differently than those of us in the science and engineering worlds or politics, you know, even that the social sciences, they still lag behind a little bit in that multidisciplinary integrated approach. So yes, absolutely. I couldn't agree more with that. I love that frog in the well analogy, by the way, kudos on that. I'm going to, I'm going to be seeing <laughs> <screaming> that. <laughs> I mean, you've worked in what I would call, let's call them serious industries, you know, yeah. helicopter design, avionics in, in military. There's, it doesn't get any more serious than that, right? Well, there's consequences. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. You know, half arsing it is not an option, right? No. So, and then you've also sort of put your foot and looked into the built environment. So how do you compare and contrast these two places? Oh, very interesting question. Um, I haven't really understood the full panorama. I'm beginning to understand the full panorama of the building science industry. I got interested in it for obvious reasons because I'm a curious person. And I think problem solving ultimately ends in all disciplines coming together. And I'm trying to pick up those pieces to put solutions together because sometimes things land on my desk, which as I said before, I'm an integrated approach person. And sometimes 
reports come on my desk, which I have to work on, or I have to fix, or I have to audit. And they have elements which I feel are not addressed or are addressed incorrectly. So I go and learn about it. And a lot of times that's a building science issue. And I know it's poorly addressed. So I have to advise that not been addressed properly. Don't look at me, but go find somebody who knows way more than you have put in this thing and let them talk about it. So at least you can address it at some level and then move from there, you know, at a level zero. So I feel like the myopic vision sometimes pervades a lot of disciplines far longer than maybe they should have. Not to say that they're not doing something about it, but maybe that trajectory is slowed down by a culture of that industry that may be more prone to uh, hugging previous ways of problem solving. And it takes a while for a person to give up something they've done for a while and just have that light bulb moment where I say, well, the thing I did over here a couple of years ago, times have changed, situations change, engineering data has changed. I got to switch over. Now what? You know, but then you're left in this limbo. You got to be comfortable with that as an engineer. You might be left in a limbo at some point when you uh, jettison previous ways of doing things, but you got to be comfortable with that jettisoning your previous adopted methods and then say, I'm going to be in a limbo here for a while. If I had total freedom of problem solving and I don't have my hat on that I had before, took off my hat of, you know, whatever I was, you know, engineer, aerospace engineer, whatever, I'm going to be a, an engine, a person trying to solve this problem with the brain I have, with the data I have. What do I do? Then I think you can come up with a better solution. And you can also now, as I said, with, you know, Internet being instantaneous, you can contact people and say, you know, give me your two cents worth. Um, we're not, you know, doing a big long dance here. But, you know, I have this thing. I'm working on this. This is what I'm trying to do. Yay or nay? Am I down the wrong path? What's your input? You don't have to just take people for face value. You can take their input and say, at the end of the day, it's your decision. But I think that's what may be missing. I mean, I'm just throwing that out as my current idea of how I see it uh, based on what I know. And I now know there's people who have been in this field for much longer, but that's my current assessment of it with what I have on my table right now. I know Adam wants to take this conversation into the data side, <laughs> but when he's done, <laughs> I want to come back at me. <laughs> I'm going to come back and, and then apply what you just said to oh, our no. understanding of COVID and oh and yeah, we got to get to that because. <laughs> So go ahead, Adam. Yeah, so yeah, that's a good point. Yeah. Yeah, that- well, you know, just to answer to the, because I didn't actually finish because your question was more about, you know, the current state of how we see the data science approach, you know, is problem solving. So currently the science of data analysis, and I know there's going to be a lot of differing opinions about it, but let me say from the trajectory I came to this point, let me preamble it. And my perspective from where I sit, knowing that there's multitude other perspectives, having said that, from my perspective as really an outsider, just look, using data, knowing the data is the key to problem solving. And that's all I've been doing, only it's been called something else. I mean, that's what engineers do, whether we do test data out in the field, you know, in an aircraft out in the wind tunnel, you know, on your guys' cases with the buildings and inside data, internal data, interior data whatever data it is, or from a computational fluid dynamics code, 
data data is data. I mean, and ultimately the numbers fall on your plate and there's only one question everybody needs to answer. Do these numbers have anything to do with real life? And that's the first question you have to ask yourself. You know, decide once and for all at the moment you're trying to solve the problem. So just to segue into your question is that the data science people have done things, again, they've started a culture of doing things a certain way. And again, there's the possibility, it's very new. I mean, relatively speaking, considering, you know, aircraft industry is a lot older, like just looking at data itself and using, marrying the statistical methods to the engineering field. Again, that, you know, myopia (laughs) is common, right? I mean, that whole discipline of uh, statistics and probability was used to do some modeling, but they never spilled it over into the engineering data and say, hey, did you know that you could create a whole new field now by looking at these gigabytes, what is it, terabytes or, you know, ultra terabytes of data that are sitting in computers from all of the analysis we've been doing other, as I said, field, literal data or computational data and throw the whole field of statistics and probability and, you know, the whole stochastic nature of uh, flow fields, for example, on it did you know you could create a whole discipline called data analysis on it? Well, yeah, I did because I was doing it way back when I did my first (laughs) little wing in the little wind tunnel where I just put a little probe there and calculated pressure. I mean, that was what that was. So giving a fancy name to something doesn't make it any clearer what it is, but the discipline has to evolve. And it's evolved to a point now where, again, people are hugging theories, people are hugging pet ideas and making the puppet do what they want it to do. So there's a danger that everything is a double-edged sword, right? So you've hit on one of the the potential flaws here is, as you're saying, it it can't just be data-driven, right? There has to be analysis and interpretation, right? So There has to be a brain in the loop, yeah. You're just looking (laughs) at raw data, then you can go down a terrible path if you're not careful. You could do anything you want. It's a puppet. like. Making something a master, which is a slave, is a big danger in anything, in any kind of a field. Like if, I, if you made the piano tell you what to play, then, I mean, you've got a problem there. So that kind of a thing has to stop across the board, not just in data science. I mean, you shouldn't pick on one field. I mean, they're trying to do the best they can with what they've got. And they've developed a lot of serious methods. But at the end of the day, there's still methods and the human brain has to interfere at the end of the day and say, you know, that's a great method for what? Fill in the box. You've hit the nail on the head there because it's it's not a pure science, it's an applied science. And that is a very important distinction because, you know, you could, bad leaders, uninformed or people who don't understand what they're looking at can take these things, run with it and just create a whale of bad consequences, right? So the application of data analysis is really important, which is why I'm excited for the building sector because the building sector is primarily an applied science field, right? Yeah. Pure science field. Thank God for that because I'm terrible at pure science and pure math, right? <laughs> but it's the application of science and knowledge to get yes. insight, right? Yes. And I think that message is really getting lost at the moment. People go, oh, follow the data, follow the data. What is it? it takes you over the cliff. Are you going over yeah, that's exactly <laughs> where people are going to go. And bye, I hope you have a good insurance policy because that is not going to solve the problem at the end. And then 
when you just said, Adam, that, uh, you know, follow the data, what data? Like, you got to be clear. <laughs> what data did you take? Did you stick a probe in the middle of the room and go, hmm, that looks good? You know, I, you have to be clear about what data did you take? Did you consult the people who are involved with that problem? I, I mean, again, I'm throwing that multidisciplinary word in, but unfortunately, you cannot solve a problem if you don't solve it from all sides of the, uh, it's like describing, a, um, you know, that four blind people describing an elephant. I mean, you got to get the information from all sides or, you know, you're going to think it's a big trunk. Now, I'm going to stop violently agreeing with you for a minute. But the other thing is, this touches on another trigger point for me is universities are supposed to teach critical thinking, right? And that's what applied knowledge is. Yes. And I just find that message is not getting out there. I'm very worried that message is being subsumed because yes. a lovely graph. What does Peter Sims call it? Colors for directors. Lovely graphs, lovely CFD analysis. Yeah, I agree <laughs> with you. Color, yeah, it was also called color flow fluid dynamics because you <laughs> throw a color in the paint program, this pressure will have this. Oh, no, I, I should add some more color so it looks better. Yeah. Okay, the lift didn't change though, did it? <laughs> I mean, still the bad aircraft you designed a long time ago. So I think that what you're trying to point at is is very important, and we're facing that today. And you know, maybe that'll segue into Robert's issues with the COVID. Is this whole? I think what this pandemic has done is brought to the surface a lot of things that we should be doing better. Education being one of them. <laughs> now, all not to parrot his name, but I remember Carl Sagan saying we should have a course called Baloney Detection <laughs> in university because he thought, you know, university by that time, you know, you're on your own and you're thinking a little bit independently. So he thought, you know, mature enough to understand what that means. And he said everyone should be equipped with what is called a baloney detector because he himself was explaining this principle of science being sometimes presented incorrectly. So, duh, today we'll say that. But in that time, that was not, you know, we swallowed whatever uh, David Suzuki. I mean, you know, he's going to be correct all, all the time. But there are some people who profess themselves to be scientists or Maybe they did dabble in something and they're half a politician. Maybe they had an agenda and sometimes they'll push a theory. And he said, no, well, that's quite true. Science is interesting, but you still got at the end of the day say, Does this makes sense, question it. And maybe it is and maybe it isn't. I'm not saying it's always wrong, but the idea that you should question something, I think, is what he was trying to get at, that you shouldn't swallow. Now, getting back to Adam's point about the education system, I totally understand the other side of that coin because here you are, they're going to send you out on at the end of four years onto a live person dependent thing, whether it be a building, whether it be a bridge, whether it be an aircraft, potentially you could be in charge because that's what they're kind of sanctifying you as, as an engineer, you've gone through the coursework, all the knowledge base, maybe you slept through it, but still they're sanctifying you as an engineer. And so at the end of the day, their kind of name is on the line and they've got to cram all this coursework. I mean, at the end of the day, they've got to say this person has, can solve this problem, sanctified this person as saying they've got the engineering knowledge to solve the problem. 
and they're putting their name on it. So ramming coursework through is the only way they know how. Now, I think since things have progressed to the point where they're doing internships and co-ops, I think that's helping a little bit with the practicality of working with other people, not just in a high school environment where you got your feet up and you're eating pizzas and you're slopping around trying to get this done at 12 o'clock when it's due the next day. That's not it. That's not for marks. It's for actually saving oh, so life. I don't see you that kind of person. I see you as being the person that would have it all done and everybody would be talking about you having it all done while they're eating pizza at midnight. Going, How did you know? <laughs> you're absolutely hate her. She's already got it all solved already. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but I couldn't wait. I was a, I was a weird person. I was like, oh, what's the answer to that? Like, yeah, like I, I, I really just wanted to know myself. <laughs> cool. I remember in second year fluid, I mean, that just, I had a memory shot of a second year fluid mechanics course and everyone failed it the first time around, of course, except me, right? But they told, <laughs> they told, they warned us about it. You know, second year fluids, you're, everyone's going to fail for it. You're going to get it. it best you can do is get a C, you know, beg the teacher. <laughs> yeah, he's a, he's, he's gonna, you know, put you to your paces, you know, killer professor and so on. And I thought, come on, it's just fluid mechanics and it's second year. I mean, what's he gonna do? Give me a PhD question? Like what? I don't even know. And, you know, he hasn't even taught the principles. Well, how hard could second year be? I mean, I just baffled my mind. What are you guys doing? Like sleeping until the last minute? So I said, okay, let me take a look at the question paper and just look at it in a cool, objective way. And sure enough, what he did, and this is the reason I got a good mark on it, was it wasn't anything scary. It wasn't like some convoluted equation or some convoluted, you know, I'm going to drop this in an anti-gravity field and what is that going to do? To, you know, it wasn't anything weird at all. What it was, was practicality versus equation. And he was trying to get across to the second year. I mean, by second year, come on, you're a serious engineer, but you called yourself that by that time. You're a student. You're going to be serious here. So it was, he picked out all the things in engineering circles where your practical answer is going to be different than your calculation, just because of the nature of the beast. He picked out all of those, and those were his questions. So every time you would think, like, if you calculate like a load on a vertical thing, what's the load at the top? And if you actually did that load calculation, that static, what is the loading at the top? You come up with this really stupid number. And then you're, you're thinking to yourself, why does not make sense? And then you go and you look up, like, what could it possibly be? What are the numbers? And then you, you know, make a good guess. And that's how you got a good mark. But the first time he did that, I got really curious, like, why is this person doing this? So I went to him. And in those days, you could see your professor. I don't know, today it's kind of harder, but in those days, you could just stay after, <laughs> yeah, stay after class or knock on his door. I think that's what I did. I, I went on a Friday, like after all classes were up because, you know, you're so busy trying to finish homework that it's just too tough and you have labs and so on. So I think I waited till Friday, went to his door and knocked on it. I figured, you know, he'd be a little mellow on a Friday. So I said, hey, I got this question for you. I, uh, did the homework. I mean, I'm not asking you for any extra help on the homework. I finished it. I'm not asking, but I just wanted to know why you had this question. Whereas when, you know, these kind of questions and each one of them has answers, which is not calculation, straightforward calculation. Anyway, you get a ballpark, but then it's not going to be that it looks weird. And he goes, yeah, that's why I put it on there. I want to know how many people were awake. And that's what all the questions <laughs> are going to be like. So, hey, guess what? You passed the class. <laughs> that's interesting. Yeah. Again, it's about 
Some people cannot deal with that level of ambiguity. They don't make good applied engineers. I find it funny, applied engineers, because engineers... <laughs> well, it's a verb, right? It's a verb. Touche, I got that. I mean, but you're totally right. Like, I'm on, I'm on your wavelength here because I, I understand what you're coming from yeah. is that they don't understand that that's what that is, that yeah. that is an application of what you know to an engineering problem and you better think of it like a real world problem. So I understand that whole terminology of applied engineer. And it's like saying, think real world, yeah. don't think book. If, if you're thinking book wise, you're never going to solve the problem, right? The other thing I want to just quickly acknowledge is what you were talking about there, the baloney meter and you know, taking someone like David Suzuki and uh, Elon Musk, for example, two, two people really who I think have sort of been elevated to priesthood status and almost cult leader status, right? So um, there's a cult of personality there. Yes. I love to talk about this topic. Thank yeah. you for bringing the word cult out because, <laughs> well, uh, yeah, oh, yeah. I mean, even with Carl Sagan, I mean, people will think that I'm a groupie. But, no, I actually read all his books, and I actually talked to him about Mars Rovers one time. I was more on the science end of things. I was never into the whole, but there were people, you know, because I volunteered to explain some of these planetary society, I think it was called, that they made up to uh, create a nonprofit, which would spin off from all of Carl Sagan's PR. So I volunteered for them and I would, in Toronto, and I would go and give lectures on, you know, what is this latest Voyager spacecraft discoveries? I'd get the pictures from NASA, I'd put them up and say, here, this is what it's discovering now. And, you know, people can be inspired by it. So I was trying to educate the next generation, you know, of, of youth that I had the benefit of having that. So I wanted to make sure they got that. And there were some people who, adults mainly, who were more into the cult aspect of Carl Sagan. And I thought, you know, this is really weird. You're misusing what could possibly help you to be a more scientifically minded citizen. You know, you don't have to go into the field just like what he was talking about, a baloney booster, whatever, you know, trying to cut through all the incorrect information and make yourself a more intelligent citizen. And I think citizen of the world should be enwrapped in this kind of questioning of scientific information. Be science wise, even if you're not savvy at science, you know, you can just be science wise and see if things make sense and follow people around, not for their cult status or put them up on a pedestal. Now, the way people do that is make it into a cult status. I can totally explain. It's because people get lazy. So, you know, let's take the simple subject of Carl Sagan while we're at it, only because I lived through his era of promotion, being his, the face of science on TV. Yeah. And I remember watching Nature of Things growing up, by the way, that was non-negotiable uh, in our house. You had to watch David Suzuki's Nature of Things each week. So having grown up in that culture, and I think that Carl Sagan was a very prolific writer, and he writes extremely well, better than a lot of science writers. He makes a very complicated thing. And again, there'll be the critics. I know some people from Cornell will say, no, I don't want anyone to know that he graduated from, or he was a professor at Cornell. You know, <laughs> so there's that flip of the coin. You see, people are embarrassed about his cult. He was on Johnny Carson. Well, I hope he was, because then there's one more kid in that audience, maybe not totally. up that late, yeah, who's going to watch him and go, 
oh my God, a scientist on Johnny Carson, sign me up. I mean, it's not nerdy anymore. It's okay. If he's yeah. going to be cool with Johnny Carson, it's cool to be a scientist. Oh, okay, I can do this now. I don't have to be afraid of being nerdy. Cults always end in the David Koresh Waco way, right? Yeah. <laughs> yes. so, That's exactly it. Like it's just yeah. people are too lazy to do the yeah. work. And so instead of picking up a book, like how many have actually read Cosmos? How many know the details of the stuff that's in there, you know? and That's the key point you said. What we're basically doing is outsourcing our thinking to these people we've put on this pedestal, right? This yeah. is my critical thinking. And actual science and STEM infused into culture is really important because there have to be the people there to knock them off when they get too big for their boots, right? Yes. When yeah. they get a bit too culty and start sleeping with your wife, you know we got to do something about that, right? Yeah, I mean, it's got to be something that's more um, like a library. You don't even have to go into his personal. In fact, you don't want to know. I don't ever want to know the personality of the people who is writing. You just want to stay away from that whole topic. You know, it may not be fun because who cares, actually? What do I care? They've written an amazing book on whatever topic it is. I'm going to read that and I'm going to get my information from it. I'm going to use that information for whatever purpose it might serve me to do the next problem-solving session of whatever it might be, and I'm and away I go. And if he's written another book on said topic or another thing, I'll go read that. But I'm not interested in how he gets up, what car he drives. There was this whole cult thing with Carl Sagan, and I always stayed away from it because I'm trying to use a person's platform to get me to my next thing, my next rung. What is that next? Okay, I want to get speeded up on inspiration on what people are doing or what's possible. And one of the things that Carl Sagan did really well is connect the past with the future through the present. Yes. He would talk about the Ionians, the ancient Aztec civilizations, yes. how they also were curious and discovered things that we don't may not understand today. We didn't answer those questions. Good and dandy, we didn't answer them because that means there's a lot of unknowns and we can use that kind of brain power and in ingenuity and say, well, if they did it, well, why can't we do it? That kind of people have to spur you on, not limit you and make you into, into a, a more limited being. You got to seek out the people and their writings that expand you into the next version 2.0. Like I want to be HEMA 2.0. What is the things that are going to get me there? Who's the person that's going to get me there. Who's the book? What's the movie? What's the thing that's going to get me there? I'm listening to you and there's a statement we always talked about in engineering. And that is, is that, you know, we use a computer to derive the number to whatever decimal place we want in terms of numerical accuracy. We get out. I have a story about this too, right? Yeah, I'm sure you do. <laughs> so then we get out of the field and we measure it with calipers, but we mark it with a chalk and then we cut it with a chainsaw. <laughs> <laughs> That was a really good example. I love that one. Right. That's and so amazing. we have a lot of we have a lot of people picking up the chainsaw. Yeah, did you file down that chainsaw to the exact decimal point of the <laughs> exactly. And so you know, and we have a lot of people stuck in the computer world. Yeah. And I think that Adam, you know, you would probably agree with this that when we look at really competent engineers and scientists. They know how to use the chainsaw, but they know where the number came from. And they, yes. you know, it's, there's a really good practical understanding. What do the numbers mean? How do we, like you were saying, Hema, yes. that's exactly what you were saying. I think, you know, going back, because I want you to talk about COVID and aerosols <laughs> and that type of stuff. We have a lot of people within 
a myopic field, and I'm and I'm not putting all epidemiologists or virologists or public health specialists in that silo. Some of them have expanded beyond just the computer, and they know how to use the chainsaw, and they've sought out other people along that chain. No pun intended. <laughs> But a lot of them, unfortunately, are in the silo. They're at the numerical or the computer stage, and they're driving public policy, and we have a problem with that. Can you talk about using your integrated knowledge, because you have such a broad base of studies and knowledge, and you've been able to put the pieces together. Can you use your integrated knowledge and talk about where we are in the world of transmissions and the epidemic that we are, the pandemic that we have, and where you think we're going months, if you will. Well, I want to start with an excellent question. I want to start with a joke, though, because um, I'm of the generation that was just as slide rules were going out and calculators were coming. I know, right? I'm speaking to the yeah. choir. So because in our day, I mean, I was on the cusp, like, so there was half and half. But the thing is that it, in the time of slide rolls, you had to know the answer, right? First, you figure out like rough, okay, 9.8 meters per second square, the guy's going this velocity, okay, well, you know, I kind of say, okay, that's probably going to be uh, 30 feet. And then you go on the slide roll, you know, like, that's how you would do it. Because you had to figure out round of park first. Otherwise, the slide rule is not going to tell you. It's going to tell you what you put in. So I remember I was on that in-between thing, and I wrote a physics exam. I think it was first or second year. I can't remember what year it was, but it was physics. And I did the whole exam, and I had my slide rule, and I did all the answers with the slide rule. So obviously, the decimal places were not there. But, you know, the answer was ballpark. So I think a TA, you know, marked it, and I didn't get a good mark. and I. I got final exam back and I was like, what? Like, that doesn't make any sense. I'm not that bad. I can't understand what happened. Was I, did I write the wrong, was I in the wrong room to write the wrong exam? So I went to the teacher again. In those days, you could not, you know, little did I know that the instructor for my course was the chairman of the department. I always thought, wow, professors have swanky offices. (laughs) So I walked into this gigantic office because he was a, he's not just a chair. He was like some big Joe. And so I walked into his office and I said, well, he must have been an amazing person to talk to like that undergraduate who wrote a final exam. I, but I guess in those days it was uncommon. Maybe I had more courage than anybody. Like, what is this girl trying to tell me? Like, she at least give her the credit for having the courage to face me. Um, so anyway, I walked in and I said, you know, I heard I got, uh, you know, this mark on the final exam. And I don't think I, I think I know what I'm talking about. So how did that happen? And he said, um, oh, well, let's go take a look. And he said, well, it seems like it looks like, uh, you know, you just had decimal places that are wrong or something. And I said, well, that's not a reason to get bad marks. I used a slide drill. And he goes, you used a slide drill? Holy cow. Okay, well, that changes everything. Okay, you must know what you're doing here because, you know, it seems right, but it's just your decimals were off. You know, you had the number right, but the other thing, and I said, well, who marks an exam based on that? Like, anyway, that was totally wrong to begin with. but. Anyway, I got all my marks and I got an A plus, but that tells you what a little bit about going back to, you know, analysis and data and numbers and number crunching. I mean, just answering your question, again, we're going to have to go back to this multidisciplinary approach. And I think this COVID and this current pandemic we're at has brought to the surface how multidisciplinary the solution is because it's building science totally. Yes. 
But on top of that, yeah, the medical field has to be involved. Now, if you go to standard numerical solutions of how fluid flows, and I know I've worked in the high-speed flow, so people are going to say, well, what do you know about flow flows, a breath of meters per second, you know, it's not going to be the same as uh, 340 meters per second for speed of sound. But true, but flow is flow in the sense that when you have two types of flow, basically, I mean, people are going to yell at that, but you do have two types of flow. One is a very predictable, let's call it subsonic laminar flow. Let's just for all intents of this discussion, this loose discussion, yeah, I'm going yeah. to be very, I'm going to be very Im- a little bit imprecise here. But let's just say a little bit more predictable laminar subsonic flow. Let's just call it that. And then there's this turbulent nature of flow. Now, in any speed, whether it's supersonic flow or whether it's breath, if there's turbulence in the flow, which there is in in human breath, only because air currents, you know, we're not breathing in straight flow. There's always going to be an air current. Like if I lift my pen, there's an air current. If there's another person in the room, there's another air current. If there's a window, there's an air current. You cannot escape the fact that these particles are so small. Like, you know, you're talking about micrometers type particles of different sizes and they're coming out. I mean, if this COVID is related to breath, which is has some fluid in it, then there's different people who have different claims of the trajectory. But ultimately, the ultimate question is, is there randomness in it or not? The answer is there is going to be randomness in it because this is one of those zero one type problems, meaning that if it's even a little bit one, it's one. <laughs> you know, it's one of those situations because right. one COVID particle is all you need. You don't need a whole bunch. You just need one to cause death. So even if there's the possibility of one particle, so if you say stochastically speaking, they're fluid laden and they're all going to go to the ground and in two meters, they're not going to touch the next guy. Then if I can show you one counterexample, and we already have done this, where, you know, a person lifts their pen and then that particle goes further because he's infected, he spoke, and he lifted his pen. Now that particle, instead of going down to the floor where your trajectory would have said, that fluid-laden particle, now got some buoyancy all of a sudden, and it's traveling in this direction to this other person. So once you have a stochastic nature of any problem, all computational models have to be suspect, and it's more or less right, is not good enough. I'm not putting anything against those people who do it, they're geniuses, even getting so far is, you know, you have to work on the problem, right? You can't go from zero to a hundred. You have to work on the problem. You have to, but again, that baloney detector, you have to say, if I'm going to solve the human problem of life and death, how much weight am I going to assign to this solution of the problem? And the epidemiologist cannot just talk about the experiment they did in the hospital with different circumstances, because that person's theory of their hospital nature of environment of COVID flow is going to be different from the politician who has to open the restaurants because the economy is tanking and all the restaurant owners are not making money. So the real problem that we all have to solve is have an integrated approach. I mean, I'm not talking from the pulpit here. I, this is just my personal opinion having studied this and having certain amounts of 
information, been exposed to certain people's work, you know, just being exposed to the information and having to be involved with it at some level, I can say that the nature of this beast of life and death in this COVID pandemic is extremely multidisciplinary. The moment we accept that and move from that vantage point is the first day of that we will be closer to to the solution. Uh, I got like goosebumps. I don't know if you can see that. (laughs) Goosebumps from that. You're absolutely right. I know there's several people who are trying to, like a lot of institutes are trying to push different disciplines on the problem. And I totally understand where that's coming from. But unless it's integrated and organized, a cardiac surgeon who knows flu, what the thing does as it after it enters is one guy, but he knows after it enters the human body what the respiratory consequences are of that. We need that person. We also need the school teacher who is going to be the recipient of said decisions that we have made post the um, situation that's come up. We have to open a school. At some point, we're going to have to have a school that's completely open and the children have to be organized in some way, at some level. And that person better be in the room because then that person can tell us that this solution doesn't work because this. Then let's put all our heads together again and go, what would make you happy? And find that point where we can open a restaurant, we can open a school and have more people live through it. And the only way we can do that is have people at the table, the virtual table, certainly the medical person, the building scientist, the teacher, the restaurant business owner, you know, and a host of other people. There's got to be at least 10 different disciplines involved in this. It's not just one, the data scientists, definitely, and many more. Now, having said that, the reason things are going awry is because the stochastic nature of this beast has to be accepted by the population. The politics of it is another department altogether. So far, this COVID discussion between us three has centered around how do we solve a scientific problem? This is a scientific problem. How do we solve it? But now there is social presence. And going back to Adam's point about putting people on pedestals and then using them as a lazy way of, I'm a scientist, I'm a a John Glenn groupie, I know all about his life. That really helps you. How much smarter are you by knowing about John Glenn's life? Did you study how he went to school and got on that rickety rackety spacecraft and how he survived in that thing because he (laughs) used his brain and not because he relied on NASA because by that time the signal would have been too late and he would have died? Did you read that part? Uh, No, I kind of thought he was a scientist. Ho, ha, ha. You know, like that helps no one. So There is this social angle we have to understand and all of our problems now, I mean, yes, I'm going on a limb to say this, but I can safely say that if we stuck to the science from the get-go and went that way with what Robert was saying, the integrated route with all of these people throwing their brains on it, we would have been further ahead and had less deaths. And I know that people will say, how how do you know? Well, because science is science. And if you just follow that, you would solve the problem sooner. The problem occurs when you have the social issue of this. You know, basically, I don't want to understand the science. I want a clear-cut thing. And why can't I see my friends? You haven't explained that to me. Okay, you can see them, but they have to be two meters away is not an answer. Because the person who said that knows full well that the COVID particles don't stop at 1.99. You've really 
highlighted the real problem with any integrated multidisciplinary solution is that there's politics and there's egos. So even on property projects, you get multidisciplinary teams, there's always this ego fight. It's always the architect, by the way, all you architects listening out there, showboating through the meeting, right, wanting to take over. So everyone talks, yes, we're all in this together, right? But Yes, I know. So working together, our social issues emanate from us not being able to work together in emergencies. And I want to just touch on Robert's, you know, that he started on this, the COVID problem is an engineering problem and a scientific one. However, the solution involves this multi-integrated approach. Who needs to be at the table is the mental health expert and the person who can solve the people problem, because unless that person is in the room. Now, in the next generation Star Trek, they had a counselor on the ship and we all thought, what's she doing there? But they understood that there's going to be mental health issues. And, you know, as goofy as they made that character, I would have made that person a little more serious in terms of demeanor. But as goofy as they made that character, they've understood that mental health is an issue and it's going to destroy the scientific problem solution is going to be a stack of cards. It could be rendered into a stack of cards by a mental health crisis, which we now have. But the mental health crisis that we created, I can just say that we created it. Because from the beginning, if we had followed the science and not done this, the particles don't end at two meters is a known fact. The fact that this is a stochastic flow field, I mean, everybody can agree on that, that there is a lot of randomness. And as much as I respect the data scientists, because they have to push that envelope forward, you got to start somewhere. You know, F equals MA, okay? You got to start somewhere with some equation somewhere and then go from there. And I respect them and I think that work should continue. However, if you're dropping that down from here to the social, to the political and the social, you need to have a more serious grasp of the implications of assuming the decisions you're making. Like if that particle leaves and people are masked, People are not masked. What kind of masks? Are they removing their masks? There's dining involved. Then people are going to be unmasked, in which case there's no equation that can save you. Then the building scientist has to come in and say, well, what can we put around this person? You know, I mean, just the logic of the whole flow field, the, you know, with the problem solving flow, this is what we call it, right? If they had done it that way, then I think we may have a better solution. But Hindsight is twenty twenty. So for me to sit here and say that is really easy. But I empathize with the politicians trying to deal with the social implication of engineering solutions. The Edifice Complex will continue in just a moment. Adam, it's time to thank some people who are on our side. Blue Rhythm Commissioning Software. Blue Rhythm is the commissioning software I've been looking for. Most projects I consult on suffer from poor information and document management. Frankly, it's just chaos out there. Blue Rhythm removes this chaos. It is a secure, always available cloud solution designed to work on any computer, tablet, or smartphone. Their Android and iOS apps allow seamless transition between online and offline work. But what I like most about Blue Rhythm is their painless and fast onboarding process. That team will bring all your existing forms and checklists into Blue Rhythm for you, or you can use or adapt their pre-built, pre-functional, and functional performance test sheet templates. But it's more than that. It enables collaboration, automation, and easy planning and project management for all your projects. 
Blue Rhythm provides amazing support from a team that really understands your industry. To find out more, go to bluerhythm.com or call country code plus one six one two four six zero eight three zero five. Also, you can hear from Blue Rhythm President Andy Martin on episode 26 of the Edifice Complex podcast. Robert, Robert, we there yet? I'm bored. <laughs> and I'm, well, it's hard to believe, but the future has finally arrived in Canada. How's that then? Well, smart remote building and equipment management is now available from Sensor Suite. Go on. Sensor Suite, yep. They're an innovator of smart building technology. We like them. They can monitor, control, and optimize anything in your building, saving you time and energy. You mean Sensor Suite are moving Canadian buildings into the 21st century? Yeah, I know. Another hard thing to believe, but they're doing it and they're saving owners money with efficiency gains. Okay, I'm in. How do I find out more? Got to go to sensorsuite.com or call 1 855 773 6767. And also check out the July 2020 episode of the NFS Complex podcast and listen to Sensor Suite CEO Glenn Spry. And now back to the show. Using Star Trek to analyze everything, which is always a good idea. <laughs> Making the Spock side of this, what I think is missing from this multidisciplinary suit is probability and statistical analysis, Bayesian statistics, right? So you could say we can accept everything you've said, and on some TV shows you'd have been muted by now because of the heresy you just spewed out. Uh, randomness, <laughs> don't know everything, how dare you? But if you take everything you've just said, which I accept fully, and the randomness of it, and the fact it's not 100%, nothing's 100%. Now, if you don't add in analysis, statistical analysis, probability analysis, and then a politician could stand up and say, look, on balance, if you're in this group, get on with it, except there's no more risk than, say, normal flu. And if you're this group, be careful. And if you're this group, stay home till we work this out, right? Yeah. That seems to be missing, because politically, you, you're not going to get re-elected if you say, it's difficult, and some of you might get it. You know, no one's electing that person. <laughs> you hit it because that's bang on the problem. And I think what happened to us as a society, a worldwide society now, because we're all connect in this together now, all of a sudden, what happened is it. this was coming at some point. The politicians, I think, the smarter ones, knew that at some point, I'm going to have to make a really difficult social implication decision, but, you know, I don't have to do it now. <laughs> so I think they knew that that was coming down the pipeline. Inevitably, you're going to have to make, I mean, if you're in the business of leading people, I mean, even uh, when we had the tanking of the financial industry way back when the United States had Obama take over in that cusp of time. Yeah. I mean, you know, they were trying to make decisions. Again, that's not as life-threatening. It's not life and death, but it is people, you know, losing all of their money. That kind of is, in a sense, life-threatening in that sense. But again, is- yeah, and they were trying to make decisions there again. Politics and social scientists were trying to figure out an economist. In that mix, those were the three groups that had to get together to make decisions and say, no, don't buy another house until we've organized this kind of a thing. So I think that they were caught off guard in the sense that, you know, there's going to be down the road a very difficult political decision that all of them have to make in order to create safety. But they didn't realize it was going to come in 2020. The other person's watch. There's a great interview I had with a European politician and she said, 
The truth is, we all know what we have to decide. We just don't know how to get re-elected if we decide it that way. Oh, that is so spot on. So spot on. Yeah. And we saw this in Quebec. I don't know if Robert was party to this whole big popcorn gate conversation. This is important for our conversation, but I don't even know if Adam knows. Do you remember this? Okay, well, in Quebec, just over here from Ottawa, where I am, you know, just over the thing, where the border is Quebec, and then the uh, premier had shut everything down. They were in the red zone. Then he saw, you know, mental health was going down, but their cases were going down. So he thought, okay, I mean, mental health was becoming an issue and the cases were going down. So then he said, okay, let's open up some movie theaters, but you cannot serve popcorn because masking, right? So it became Popcorn Gate because in the legislature of Quebec, he was made fun of. (laughs) Our premier won't let you eat popcorn. And so you know what he has to do? He has to let them sell. Yes. Which is the bad way to go. We know that. So why couldn't that person get on TV and say, this is ridiculous, this is why I've made this decision and I'm not changing it. If you don't like it, don't vote for me next time. Well, that's a hard place because he knows he won't be. And if your votes are based on popcorn, maybe there's another problem. Yeah, exactly. I want to just, you know, because we're getting towards the end of the our interview here, which is too bad because um, this is wonderful. Good, yeah. but, I do, but I do want to, um, you know, illustrate for our listeners this integrated and why it's important to bring the studies together because you, we could take an epidemiologist and study the interaction of two people in a restaurant scenario. Let's just say, a, you know, maybe a, it's a fancy place. There's 20 feet of glass. Yep. And there's two people, you know, one person's exhalation becomes another person's inhalation. And then they yep. need to say, okay, well, where's that break occur where there's, you know, it's, it's a risk assessment, the further they get away. Right. Mm-hmm. And they know that stuff. And, and most aerosol scientists and the epidemiologists, they debate about terminology, but they understand that. Okay. Mm-hmm. Now let's take those people and let's just move them out of that table for a second. And then we yep. bring in the engineer and the engineer will say, okay, well, the air temperature and the density of that air hits, yeah. the, uh, say, say it's a wintertime scenario, warm air hits the glass, changes the density, changes yeah. the buoyancy, it drops down that glass, and now we have a draft. Mm-hmm. If there was an architect involved, and the engineer said, well, we want to break up that fluid flow off the window, so we're going to put a ledge. So now the air hits the ledge, comes down, creates a jet, mm-hmm. right, and mm-hmm. turns the flow off of it. Mm-hmm. And now we know we have a discomfort problem or we're trying to solve a discomfort problem with this ledge. Now let's mm-hmm. get people back into that table. Mm-hmm. And so now we have this randomness occur at a really big scale because exactly. these people, one person's exhalation, one person's inhalation gets disturbed by this downdraft. We can't isolate that interaction. We need to mm-hmm. understand the health component and we need to understand the mechanical, the building side of it and the architectural side. And unfortunately, we have only the epidemiologist looking at the epi side of it, the virologist looking at the viral, the viral uh, part of it, and we have to come together. There's no doubt about it. You have to accept randomness and the stochastic nature of this. Exactly. If you can't accept yeah. that, we ain't going to be getting anything done. <laughs> right. Yeah. The low-cost experiments that teach parents how to teach their kids about the randomness and one of them was a really cheap form of shadow graph technology, which is kind of like Schillerin photography, yeah. where you can actually see the thermal plume. So what I did, the sunlight was coming through one of my windows here. Right. And so I disturbed the sunlight with steam. I just took a steam kettle and yeah. I heated up cool. this plume of steam. And so the light 
came through it. And then you could see just this randomness on the wall. It was the shadow of the disturbance. I think my budget for that was zero dollars. Like to have around the house. <laughs> you know, and so we can teach society without the academics and the terminology and the complexity. Just by looking around us, we see what is happening. We just have to pay attention to it, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, well, I think you actually uh, addressed a few points. One is at home education. If the parents themselves are Otherwise, A, distracted, even if they are capable of doing these fun things with their kids and they're into it, they are distracted by the economics of the current climate with everything else that's going on, having themselves to cope with the COVID environment, the pandemic environment, and all the ramifications thereof that have fallen to their plate in terms of just living life. That's number one. So you're considering a subset of parents who are now interested in educating. So now you've dropped your percentage of that. So right. I don't think it would be that bold to say that most parents don't fall into that category. They would just rather the school do it and they would rather do their thing only because they have just so much on their yeah. you know mind to do that extra thing. Did you, you know, we heard of the runoff of what happened when they were suddenly forced to homeschool, you know, shock, of course, but, you know, it took them a long time to wrap, you know, why aren't the teachers doing it? So there was all of that. But yeah, and at home we could all put together like, 10 fun exercises you can do with your kids and maybe 20% of the parents will do it. That's what my guess is. And those that do do it, you know, I don't think fully will be able to transfer to the child, you know, what you can't see. I think the one principle of this pandemic that is hard for people to wrap their head around, even adults, is that it's something you can't see but has disastrous ramifications if you don't respect and acknowledge its presence. I think we can safely say that it is now everywhere and it's a stochastic process of whether your interaction with it is going to cause ramifications or not. And the only way you can slow it down, uh, you know, as Robert taught that, you know, all these experiments are great for teaching children what we're dealing with. At least they will be able to wrap their head around it. But I think that And because of the stochastic nature that we've proved of this thing that we're dealing with, because of this randomness, and, and, you know, I loved your example of how you can refit dining areas or, you know, what the possibilities are. And I also love Adam's comment that, you know, you get many cooks in the pot and you get nothing that's edible at the end of the day. So that's going to be the problem there. So on the reverse side, I think the only bottom line out of this conversation we can have is, intelligent people, forget building science or data science, whatever it is you are, the intelligence in us tells us that we have to protect ourselves. Distance is not a factor. I mean, even yesterday I was hearing somebody say people are going to be distanced. It's not going to help you. What you really need to do is just to try to do as much not going out as possible. Try to stay away. Try to mask. I think masking changes the flow direction to up. Still coming out. <laughs> it's still coming out, but it's, it's changing the direction from interaction this way to up. And then it'll hit something else and it'll go out. So all to say that the particles are out there. They're not going to go anywhere else. What, what the uh, epidemiologists will say then are the larger wet particles will be absorbed by the mass. But we already know that the micron size of COVID particles can be very small, which is the biggest problem we have. If they were all large, I think we would have solved it by now. It's just that we have smaller particles 
that are also COVID particles and they will escape through holes in them. Fluid has to go somewhere. There's conservation of mass. So you, so you change the direction it's going up now. So that just means your interaction in this plane isn't there. So by the time that particle hits something and comes back down, you may have bought yourself some time is all we're saying. So your interactions really have to be limited. I think why we're here in 2021 with still the same problem, more or less, we had, I mean, with a vaccine, of course, which is not 100% anyway. So that's the other problem. The false safetyness of vaccines is even after the vaccine, I don't think everybody understands the fact that you're still going to have to be at home. You're still going to have to mask. And you're still trying to limit your amount of interaction with public spaces, with other people. And going back to the first statement we made, this goes beyond just any one discipline. You know, this is going to politicians, social scientists, building scientists, epidemiologists, and data scientists, and, and everybody else have to be in the mix. And aerodynamics whatever it is that takes to fly this plane that human beings are on. We have to be sensible. And the rationality of this is that it's not something you can solve with any one discipline. One, one observation I've sort of had is we've lost the ability to accept that you can live a risk-free life. You can't live a risk-free life. So in the early 60s, the Hong Kong flu killed 1.5 million people. Yeah. Didn't, make news, didn't stop a single aeroplane flying, not one. But then that was not too far from the Second World War. Things weren't as settled and as comfortable as they are now. There was a lot more acceptance of the randomness of an unfairness of death, right? Yeah. Whereas now we're in this like Kardashian bubble of like, yeah. you're awesome, you're lovely, you're wonderful, and it's going to be great, you're going to live forever, you know, and it's yeah. not true. But who- yeah, I, I totally <laughs> agree. I think we have to get post pandemic out of our vocabulary because even yesterday somebody was saying, What are you going to do in a post pandemic world? When is that? When's that? <laughs> it's never happening. Yeah. yeah, and a very intelligent cardiac surgeon, and he's hitting up a team of multidisciplinary people. I'm not sure of the details of his work. All I know is that one statement he made at a town hall meeting a few weeks ago from the Fields Institute is that he said, forget that life is never going to go back. It's never going to go back to where it used to be. Yeah, this is actually a good time to do our rapid fire questions because yes. we are getting on and and I want to actually segue with with what you just said, because my question I have for you to sort of and today's presentation, Adam, of course, will fire one too, is that if you could see yourself at Cornell giving a commencement speech to a graduating class and you started your message with get comfortable with letting your past go, what would the message continue on to the students? What would you say to them? Yeah, get comfortable with letting your past go, deal with the data you have now, use your brain. You've clearly used your brain to this point. Don't let go. Don't lean on one specific person for all your information. Use yourself as your own propellant and propel yourself to do great things for humanity and move forward. Excellent. Okay, so using the Star Trek analogy one more time, do you remember Q, the character Q? There was a character in Star Trek Next Generation that picked oh, up. Oh, Q, Q, yeah, yeah, of course, my favorite character, Q. Yeah, he was this omnipotent like, person who could create, so I'm Q. I'm going to say you have the chance to, I will reset everything, and you can be preeminent either as a lawyer, a doctor, an engineer, a banker, or just a social media star. Which one of them are you picking? Engineer. Hands down. Yeah? Why is that? 
Because you're using your ingenuity. That's what the word engineer means. The sky's the limit. You're not boxed into anything. You, By definition, you're going to be using ingenuity. You're going to be using facts to base your conclusions. Just by definition, it's a wonderful place to be. And I couldn't agree more with that. It's always better to take the path where there's growth, I think, right? Definitely. There's always growth in that because there's always some problem that he's solving. I love that. That's a great way to wrap up, actually. So. that's, this has been our first Star Trek episode, I think. <laughs> I think so. <laughs> Do I get to be Q and snap? <laughs> <laughs> there we go. Yeah, totally. Thank you very much for coming thank on. Thank you. I had fun. That was amazing. It was a yeah, well, thank you. fun topic. Yeah. It was great. Thank you very much. Adam, another amazing interview. I mean, how could you? She is so inspiring. I, I wish she was a professor for me. I, You know, she... She's so inspiring, and I love how she puts things into just sort of easy-to-understand concepts. And because of her ability to integrate the different fields of study, she just really gets the macro, but her brain also has the ability to deal with the micro. I kept thinking the college and the university system sucks because there aren't teachers like that. And it always reminds me of one of my heroes, Dr. Feynman, right? So his thing was... You ever heard of him? He's a, he was a physicist, American physicist. He, he was the one who worked out why the space shuttle blew up in the end. He's, okay. he's passed away now. His heyday was the 50s, 60s, and 70s, and then they called him back in the 80s to solve that problem. But his big thing was if you can't boil down complex science and engineering issues so that normal people understand them, you don't understand them. So his classes were a mixture of heavy math and demonstrations. He really got the visual and the, like, this equation, this is what this looks like. You know, there's been some, he was a fantastic teacher, but he was also a safe breaker and a card player. Really? Yeah. Okay, that's... That's, that's personality, cool. right? That is cool. <laughs> yeah, Dr. Feynman. There's a great documentary called, Are You Kidding? Or Seriously, Dr. Feynman, it's worth seeing. He's really, really interesting dude. I follow him, and there's a Twitter account for him. He's the same as Dr. Feynman. He's freaking brilliant, man. But if people like him were in there, like, teaching, school wouldn't suck so much. It would be more interesting. (laughs) (laughs) My question always, when you go to a bad project and you go to a a project office and it just looks, it's disgusting, it's dirty, nothing, all guys, I always think to myself, why does it have to be like this? This is a choice, right? And you go to university and you get a shitty teacher. Why is it like this? It doesn't have to be like this, right? When you get someone like uh, him on, who obviously, you know, is a scientist and an engineer, an application engineer, but she starts talking about cults, you know, the, how cults get created and mental health. You know, she has that diverse study and understands how they come together. I loved her. We were talking before how we know when we have, you know, a good guest. Well, we, they're all good guests. Yeah. You know, let's face it, they're all good guests. Yeah. And I go back to my filing cabinet and I look at the notes I've got and I go, I can't believe we had the opportunity to interview this person. Yeah. <laughs> you know, but like we, I run out of paper. Like I run out of, I start, I start every interview with a blank folder yeah. and then my, and then the, the sheet I read describing our guest. Yeah. And, you know, like at the end of a good interview, like there's no room left. I'm search. I'm actually searching my desk for more paper to write off. That was that again. And, and one of the things she'd like in the data side, you know, because I know that was your belly with it. That was, yeah. and she said, and this applies in so many ways, there has to be a brain in there. When you think about who's the master and who's the slave, 
Yeah, that's a good analogy. I love that. That was, that was a brilliant analogy. And when she started talking about that, I thought this is exactly what we have going on in the world where we have, for example, again, I'm picking on the epidemiologist, but they become slave to the data, but not looking at the right data. Yeah. And the data in many ways is their education. It's the dogma that they've been taught. It's the old stories that were in books that no one ever challenged it, right? And so the old information that came from the book drives their decision today rather than the brain thinking about, well, does this make sense? And that's what Hama said. She said, you get all this data here and does it actually have utility in the circumstances that we're dealing with? She is a great example of someone who's got deep academic knowledge, yet can be applied and can think and join the dots between social sciences, political sciences, actual sciences, engineering, and how that interacts. That's where you get insight and change and movement forward from, right? Yeah, for sure. what you need. And so when she was talking and then that, image came in my head about, you know, we use computers to calculate the values to whatever decimal place we want. And then we measure them with calipers, Margaret with chalk, and then cut it with a chainsaw. (laughs) Yeah, right. And so, and then she she started talking about mental health and the fatigue and how people are getting to a place where they don't care anymore. And that really, that crowd is the chainsaw crowd. Like they've been, they don't quite understand the ramifications of their decisions. They don't understand the depth of the studies that have gone in to put the mark on the log and why we're using calipers. But ultimately, the politicians mark it with the chalk and then society cuts it with a chainsaw. That the chainsaw murders, you know, they're just going to, they're done. Like they're tired and we're fed up and they're just going to go back to the way it is. And of course, we're going to end up with a huge, huge problem on our hands. One of the most interesting, I think, important aspects of that discussion we just had was the cultism side of it. Because... There's a cult of personality in politics. So you think about follow the data, right? Who can disagree with that? No one's going to disagree with that, right? But it's become a meme. It's become political dogma. And then you get that who's the master of slave at the end of that line, right? So you've got a pile of data, right? So if it tells you some people get in their car, the GPS isn't up to date, and they drive into a goddamn field, right? Yeah. <laughs> right. That is the danger of what's going on. We're a real inflection point at the moment in society where you're having engineering, science, political issues, social issues, and health issues all button heads. And something will give, and it could give in a bad way. That's what worries me. So from situations like this, I don't want to be dramatic here, hell on fire, but like fascism can come from, or bad politics can develop, or people, groups fight other groups, right? This is where real leadership really matters. And you look around, I don't see a lot of that at the top, and that's really what worries me. Let's take on a Prime Minister can, for example, just pick on Justin, right? He's a cult of personality in a way, right? So sure, yeah. I'm him. My job is to get re-elected and survive, right? So what do I do? I need a full guy. So I go, I have a science czar or a health czar. That person's going right under the bus if it don't go my way, right? And this is where it starts getting squirrely and bad decisions get made. Well, you need that Churchillian-type leader who says, you know what, I'm making a decision, you don't like it, vote me out, I don't care. That's what you need right now. New Zealand. See these people. Yeah, New Zealand's got some of that, for sure. It was like, this is the way it's going to be, and if you don't like it, there's a boat and a plane on the way out of our country, just not coming back. 
leadership really does matter in times of crisis. It really sure does. She said something else, which, you know, ought to be adopted by every educational institute on the planet. And that is be science wise. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, like that. That's a meme. That's a bumper sticker. Oh, totally is a bumper sticker. Be <laughs> science wise. You know, I don't think you know. There's three words that are more powerful than that. And she, yeah. you know, she clarified. You don't need to be the scientist and get down into the weeds and understand the calculus that's involved. But just have an awareness of the science. You know, yeah. because it describes everything around us. It describes the light describes the flow of air, it describes temperature, it describes the breaking down of materials, everything in our life, agricultural, economics, there's a science element to it. You don't have to be the scientist, but you need to be aware of the science, be science-wise. I, I love that. You know, one of the takeaways I'd like to leave people with today is you know, if you're young, going to college or university, demand education, not just rote Go to chapter four, do that equation. Demand education. And if you ain't getting it, go somewhere else. Because yeah. until there's a market that moves towards quality and moves away from standard bullshit, nothing's going to change. And it's on the people paying to demand that change, right? Baloney detection. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> if you're feeling this is BS, trust your instincts. It's probably BS. Go somewhere else. Yeah, you know, I used to hang out and do you know, on Facebook and talking to friends and stuff like that. And I've actually backed away because, you know, these are people that I respect and colleagues that I've known for a long, long time. But it's like, what happened to your critical thinking? You know, like, where's your baloney detection? And they're functioning at the chainsaw level. And and it's so I've, I've sort of stopped. I pop my head in every once in a while and throw some stuff out there. But I, I can't deal with it anymore. You know, it's just, it's too hard to watch people that I respect. It's intelligent people who should know better joining cults. Yeah. I'm associating with this gang because that's that's who I am. That's my personality, right? And then there's not a lot of thinking beyond that, unfortunately. Yeah. I don't. What do you think of her statement, frog in the well? I love that. I love that. <laughs> I've been that frog many times. <laughs> <laughs> you're going to live and die inside that thing. Yeah, yeah. That's the truth, right? You, you've got to realize when you're in a silo and then climb out, right? It's all right. You can make a decision. So like, when I was running the Toronto office for Cobalt Engineering as an MEP design firm, there were some people who just really wanted to do I just want to be the electrical engineer. I don't want to. I'm like, That's fine. As long as you can state that and know that and people know that around you, that's good. You can deal with it, right? Yeah, yeah. Being in that silo and kidding yourself, you're a multidisciplinary genius. That's where things start going. Really. <laughs> Using her aeronautical, astronautical, Aerospace vocabulary, you know, she word used words like jettison. I love the terminologies she used again, you know, because she, she she has that capacity. Anyways, I've got pages and pages yeah. of stuff that she said that I cherish, and and we're going to get her on, and we'll get her into some other stuff as well. But Adam, it was another awesome interview. Yeah. Thanks again for making this possible. Really, this is again a great cloud, and I'm just. Grateful to have the opportunity to be with you on it. Thanks. Good stuff, man. All right. See you on the next one. You've been listening to the Edifice Complex podcast with Adam Muggleton and Robert Bean. To access show notes for this episode, visit edificecomplexpodcast.com. 
Also, if you would like Robert or Adam to speak, teach, or consult on your project or business, please email admin at edificecomplexpodcast.com. See you next time.